over the last few years, um, in our household, we have started to eat majorly homemade bread, which is to my great delight. <laughs> it is way better than store-bought, I can assure you. Uh, I, sco I scope out the best deals for flour, and I buy them in bulk, which uh, some here have teased me with, saying that if the stores run dry, they'll come to my house and get flour or oats or whatnot. Elizabeth uh, uses either dry yeast or she develops leaven and uses that as a sourdough starter. And this yeast then spreads through the, the entire dough. And uh, she uses that and makes the dough to rise and leads to a nice and uh, fluffy bread compared to unleavened bread, which has some, what you like too, it's more the compact and flat bread. Bread is a staple food in our home, and we continue today in Mark, and we will see the importance of bread in the life of the disciples. And there, for us today, I hope that we can see how it comes to living a life as a disciple of Christ for us too, and then not speaking only of bread for eating, but bread in a, another sense, as we will see. I've said a couple of times already that Mark is divided up into three portions, and today we will, we will close one of the, the first acts, in a sense. And I, I rightly believe it was fully Mark's intention to his audience to remember what Jesus has already done in Mark. So he's calling them to remember his audience, uh, Roman, predominantly Gentile um, audience, and so it is appropriate for us to also remember and look what Mark has done so far in Mark before we launch into more of the direct revelation of who Jesus is, as Gideon will, take, will start us on that next time. So to sum up this Act 1, I hope that we can see, and as Jesus calls them to remember, and I hope we will do the same. In Mark now, un until now, we've seen how Jesus comes onto the stage. God spoke from heaven declaring that this Jesus was his son. This Jesus, as we have seen, has been walking around. And as Mark 1, 14 and 15 says, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. We see Jesus healing, preaching and confronting the religious leaders for their lack of faithfulness to the truth. As people said of him, he teaches with authority compared to the scribes and Pharisees, not as the religious leaders did then. This is a story going on and on in Mark through the chapters. He's going around preaching and teaching He's bringing the good news of the gospel. He says, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out, to preach the gospel. Jesus preached. He did miracles to validate his claims, his, his preaching, and he confronted the scribes and the Pharisees as he did so. Jesus has healed a man with an unclean spirit where... Um, he has cleaned many in a whole town. He has cleansed the leper, 
a paralytic, a man with a withered hand. He stills a storm. He heals a man with a, with a demon, legion, a woman bleeding, and Jairus' daughter, all the way teaching what the kingdom is and how faith works. He then feeds 5,000 men, many assume several thousand of women and children too. He walks on the storm to his disciples. Remember how they beat themselves at the oars, struggling. He heals the sick. He heals the Syrophoenician woman. And uh, as, Gideon taught us, as Gideon taught us last Sunday, and he also heals a deaf and a mute man. And then he fed another crowd of, of thousands, of 4,000. And our text opens up right after this, this, as the Pharisees are seeking a sign from him. We'll see that the disciples, too, are not fully able to grasp Jesus' true ministry, the true significance of Jesus' ministry. But as the Pharisees are left in the dark, Jesus guides his disciples, and we will see in the coming weeks that they get to see more and more fully as it goes on. So the, the title of today's lesson or sermon is Leaven of Unbelief Hardens Hearts. Leaven of Unbelief Hardens Hearts. By talking about bread, we will divide this into two parts this morning. First seeing, and I'll repeat these when we get there, wrong doctrine will harden your heart. And secondly, the leaven of unbelief is wrong doctrine. We'll see the result of leaven of this leaven first. We will see what it leads to first. And then the second point, I hope we will see this, es- this leaven in its essence is unbelief and it leads to hardened hearts and also how to abstain from it in a sense, how to be aware of it, this leaven. Wrong doctrine will harden your heart. It will harden your heart. I don't know if you remember back to chapter 4 in Mark when Jesus gave his parable of the sower. He mentioned these four types, the the hard, the ground, the the path, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, and the the good ground. The sower seeds. He he sows some seeds, and some fell on the road, some among thorns. Only the seed that fell on good soil sprang up, while the seed that landed on any other ground was either well, it didn't spring up, it didn't last. It was much harder ultimately too hard to grow in some ways because of the devil, birds coming to pick up the, the seed, because of the persecution of the truth and the, and the world in it, as the thorns clogging up, um, and all its worldly and empty pleasures and r- deceitful riches chokes it. And we see here exhibit A of tough soil in the Pharisees. We've seen a few times how the, how the Pharisees and the religious leaders were hypocrites. They were putting on a mask, in a sense, of holiness or piety. They, they said and they acted as they were these holy men of God, yet all they did was to twist the truth to their own benefit, in a sense. 
They were even called hypocrites by our Lord Jesus in Mark. I don't know if you've ever seen a patch of super dry dirt. dirt. Like it is starting to crack. It's so dry. This is the hardness of hearts. And have you seen what happens if you pour water on it? Does it immediately drink it in? It doesn't. The, the dust and the dirt is so hard and compacted that water will just flow over it and continue on disappearing. It is not absorbed, at least for a good while. Um, it does eventually if it soaks on it, but if you sprinkle water on it, it will just, nothing ever happened. These Pharisees are not just rocky ground. The ground is tough as rock, yet they walk about as if they are the holiest of people. Yet they cannot see the one that the, even the demons addressed as the Holy One of God, standing there right in front of them. They have seen him perform miracles even in front of their own eyes. The healing of the one with the withered hand, it happened as they were accusing him of heresy in the synagogue. And in front of their, of their eyes, as, as you now, it's, it was in this setting in a sense. It was face to face. It was near. And he said, would it be wrong of me to do this? Paraphrasing. And, as, and their silent answer is like, you shouldn't do that on, a, on the Sabbath. But Jesus heals the man with a paralytic arm, hand or arm. Like it is sick, it is dead. But in front of the face, he heals it. And they saw it. But just this water on rocky ground, it just gave away. They've seen several of the miracles. They've heard the stories of all the things that Jesus has done. And that is why they come to him again and again and again, not to worship him, but to confront him of his evil ways and heretic, heretical teaching and his blasphemous ways, they say. Because the people are loving him, either because they get their bellies filled and their aches removed because he, he heals. And it doesn't say that all those who were healed came to him. It's, always, it's even hinted at that uh, other parts in the Gospels that you came just to get your bellies filled, in a sense. But people also loved him because he is the one who filled their heart. So here in our text they are, in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. As I was reading and preparing for this, um, I don't know about you, but I was almost tempted to get angry with them when I read this. The, the arrogance of demanding that Jesus heed their beck and call and do this. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course, Pharisees, I'll do it right away. The arrogance to demand that Jesus play to their tune. I, I heard a debate once. I, I can't recall who or like who it was. But between a Christian and an unbeliever, and the unbeliever continually demanded, show me, show me, show me a sign, give me proof, in a sense. 
And the Christian responded, Even though tomorrow, if it's written on the moon, the man's name whom he debated, and God is real, or something that is visible to the naked eye, and you could see it on the moon, like, you can't just do that. The unbeliever, the Christian said, would still try to find some way of disqualifying it by some or another theory of illusion or trickery of the mind or the likes. He would not accept it as proof because of the hardness of heart. It would just be water just, just runs across it. The Christian was right, though, even though a sign in heaven would not convince a hard heart because it would be as water running across a dry waste. And this is exactly what the Pharisees are demanding here. They're saying, show us a sign from heaven. Why from heaven? As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. He who once was a Jew, in a sense, continued to be so, of course, but he lived under the Jewish understanding. He said that it is all about the signs against his former comrades, in a sense. They were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They came to test him. And these Pharisees were not just asking him to explain. Show us a sign. We really want to see what you have to, have to show us, what you have to tell us. Can you just explain to us again? It was not the, let us discover if this man is truly a prophet, as they were, they were told to by, by the scriptures. They should test the prophecies. This was not their kind of test. It was supposed to, to prove to everyone that he was a fraud, to prove to everyone that he was in league with the devil. It's more the testing of how good is it. It's not that, but it's more the how much pressure can it take before it breaks, that kind of crash test. This kind of testing is used three times in Mark, this specific word for testing. It is used... When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, that's one of them. And other times it's by Pharisees against Jesus. Even the Old Testament signs were not a staple in the sense of a prophet. The true test of a prophet was not if he performed signs or not. It was if it was false or not, the teaching. They... They saw, the Pharisees, they saw that he couldn't get him on his teaching because, as other people commented, he's teaching as one with authority. So they tried to trick him in hoping that he would fail or give in to the pressure, as the devil did. Jump off the temple and prove that the angels will catch you, in a sense. It was the prove to me. Jesus had done miracles all along, and all had seen it. But it's not this that the Pharisees are asking of. Not a miracle, dunamis in a sense, a power display, but a semeon, a sign, something visible. And they specified in the heavens. The Jews had a superstition that only that the devils could give people power or the devils themselves could perform miracles or signs on earth. But only God could do 
miracles in heaven was their thought. There's some sense to it, yes, as even the magicians in the, in the Pharaoh's court in Egypt could transform sticks into snakes. And it's difficult to explain away the things they did. And elsewhere in the Bible, it warns against those who can do signs and wonders, yet lead the people astray from the truth as they do so. The Pharisees earlier, directly to Jesus' face and to people all around him, had accused him that he does all these things in the power of the devil. But if Jesus could do, as happened in Joel 2, that this make the sun go dark or the moon to blood, or as in Joshua 10, when the sun stood still, or as in 1 Kings 18, when Elijah called fire down from heaven, now that would be something to really prove Jesus do something from, from God. It would be a sign in heaven, in a sense. If Jesus really came in God's name, he would, of course, have God's authority and could do the things God could do. Was there thought? And it is true, he could, and if he would. But uh, even if they continued to test him at the, at, to the end at the cross, they tempted him to perform an earthly miracle come down from your cross if you can. It's like, then, it, then they wouldn't have a heavenly sign. They was just, get down from the cross if you can. Again, it was not this, please show us the genuineness of your teaching or who you are, but you can't really do it, can you? That was this, their test. Jesus did not call down fire from heaven. He did not come down from the cross but he came out of a tomb, yet still they didn't believe. And so he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. This sighed deeply. Commentators say it's, it conveys the absolute limit of his patience. It's the, I don't, I, I'm not going to try to copy it, but it's like just the deepest strongest sigh full of all the emotions that Jesus displayed there and he's in a sense at the end of the rope with patience for them this this generation language echoes through God's dealing with mankind for example Genesis 6 3 where God says my spirit shall not strive with man forever there were limits to God's patience, and we see here that Jesus shows the end of patience, not in a sinful way, but in a, now it's, it's enough. Are you testing God's patience? Thinking, I'll deal with this later. I will deal with this sin. I will start doing this now or tomorrow. I am. I'm convicted of this not doing enough in a sense. Not that, as, as Gideon said that in his confession teaching today, we are saved by grace through faith. So it's not that I have to work to earn my salvation, but because of my salvation, I want to do more. As with all kids who learn their parents' love, they don't want to do good things in a sense to earn the love, but it's because of their love 
that they respond with love and kind. So I am I'm sometimes prone to take God's patience for granted. And I, I urge you, don't, as I tell myself to, God's patience, even with, with his own, can lead to suffering. So I urge you, don't test God's patience. And for some listening to this recording or elsewhere, God's patience may be at an end soon. God, only God knows. So I urge you, don't test God's patience. Because we will see as God groaned with the Pharisees, Jesus Jesus left them. May we even never give him cause to do so with our lives. The sinful stubbornness of the generation of Noah's day, the Exodus generation, and here as in Deuteronomy 32 says that, in whom is no faithfulness. The truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this, this generation. You've probably heard someone give a, a message or an instruction time and time again. It falls on deaf ears. And then it comes. If you do this one more time, dot, dot, dot. This is that kind of statement. But more in the, if I were to give you more signs now, dot, dot, dot. It was a commonly used, in a sense, then God do so and so to me for doing for giving in to giving more signs to you, unfaithful generation. So Jesus's lim- Jesus's patience is at its limit. He will give no more sign to this generation. He tells the Pharisees, "If I do so and so, God do so and so to me." Was the implication? Matthew Henry says in his commentary that it's so absurd that they would desire a sign that they greedily swallow the traditions of the elders without confirmation of any sign at all. They follow the generate the what the what the elders say, wash this much, do this, don't do more than this, and that all without a sign, just oh yeah, that's that's good. But here when Jesus comes and says you're doing wrong, my friend. Well, I don't think he addresses them as friends, but you're doing wrong by leading the people astray. But now they want a sign because he contradicts them. They've been given sign after sign after sign because Jesus himself was the sign given. But they missed it because Jesus was not the one they were looking for. And so he left them and departed. The sadness in Isaiah 9, 1, is that the land of Sebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. The sadness of it is that the Pharisees were blind to it. So all they did was deny it and try to discredit it. It was like light flashing in their eyes and was like, no, there's no light here. They're blind to it. They didn't see it. They didn't receive the light. I said that I was tempted to get angry, but that anger must be a jealous anger in the sense that we are angry at the blindness of their eyes and the hardness of their hearts, not the people themselves. We spoke about last, of sin last Sunday in the study of our confession. 
And here we see out of the parable of the sower of the devil that the devil, the world, and the flesh prevents hard hearts to receive the light and the revelation of the kingdom that, that has come into the world. Who are those people in your life that seems to be so hard that no water will soak the ground, no light will disperse the darkness? Who in your life do you know that if the moon did reveal the text, God is real, they would f- first try to discredit it as like, ah, that's just a trick. It's a picture. It's Photoshop or whatever. <coughs> the good news is that given enough water and or time, even the hardest of hearts can be softened by the renewing waters of grace. And also, which generation are you sitting here or listening to the recording? Do you demand a sign to believe? One said that faith that depends on proof is not a faith, but veiled doubt. There are limits to God's patience for me, for you, for all people. Our hope, then? For Jews demand signs and Greeks take wisdom. We, we read this already. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Christ crucified is our hope. So this is for those whose hearts were hard. Let's now look at what it is that turns the hearts hard so we can prevent it in a sense. By God's grace, we can avoid it. So looking at 14 to 21 and seeing that the leaven of unbelief is wrong doctrine, simply put. So, verse 14. Now that they, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. It's almost comical that they were just at a place where 4,000 people were fed, and there were baskets full of food. <laughs> they forgot to bring some of it. Like, what happened to the food? Maybe they gave it out to everybody there, I don't know. But they forgot to take with them. Maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe Jesus said, it's enough, we go now this minute. Maybe they didn't know how short on supply they were. But we will see here that the problem, or that the disciples' ultimate problem, was not the lack of bread, but lack of faith. In the prior point, the Pharisees were utterly hard. They were completely hard. But here Jesus will guide and nurture the faith that is there to prevent it from hardening. As they are not seeing the point Jesus is making yet. As God tells Ezekiel that he is living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see but do not see and ears to hear but do not hear. So Jesus here is living among a generation such as these. So from this point on, them only having one bread, and it says they have no bread, but it says they have one bread, but it's more that one bread is not enough for them, so they don't have bread for enough for themselves. It becomes the means of how Jesus teaches them about faith. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The late R.C. Sproul said that we have all seen a sign saying, Beware the dog. And that is 
natural. We are warned of a potentially dangerous dog. But if Jesus says, beware of something, we better listen carefully. Do I have your attention? Are you listening closely to what this warning is? Beware. Watch. For what? Leaven. Yeast. Well, we will see that it's more dangerous than the word implies. If I was one of the apostles, I think I would be a little bit confused. Like, beware the devil. It's like, yeah, <laughs> he's, oh, he's. Beware the, the Gentiles who will kill you for your faith, or the Jews even who will kill you for your faith. <laughs> Beware of leaven, of yeast, of flour and water. Huh? What? Beware of leaven? Leaven refers to yeast, and we're talking about bread today. Uh, yeast is a single-celled fungi, fungi uh, used in baking bread and other baked goods. To, as a leavening agent, which causes the bread to rise, that is to expand and become lighter and softer by converting sugars in whatever it's in, in the dough, into carbon di—sorry, car, English second language—carbon dioxide and ethanol. When my wife bakes what is commonly called sourdough, she has this starter, this leaven. So water and flour are mixed together and they are allowed to ferment and then these single-celled fungi, they, they breed in it in the sense they, they multiply. And so she mixes this, a portion of this, which I asked her yesterday to find out the exact measurements, but if you want them for a recipe you can ask her. But it's a, it's a smaller piece of this sourdough starter or this leaven mixed into a greater batch of water and flour. And the, the, the thing about it is that a relatively small part of yeast develops through the whole dough when it's mixed together. And I asked, how much to how much? And she said, given enough time and the right uh, environments, you can just use a s- single tiny piece, or even you can just use the, the scraps on the, on the mixing bowl you had and just throw water and flour in there. And given enough time and the right temperature and all this, that is enough. Just the small scraps or just a, a teaspoon or even less, if given enough time, it will start developing by itself. And so a relatively small part of yeast spreads through the whole. As Galatians 5.9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So what is the bad news about Leaven. What is so bad about leaven that Jesus warns his disciples? His disciples, missing the point when speaking about bread, start to discuss with one another that they have no bread. And so Jesus is hearing this and he's saying, Why are you so caught up in physical bread? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about physical bread. And the yeast is not physical yeast, but he's using a physical image to, pr- to give some spiritual insight. He's saying, leaven is only the messenger of the point. It's the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod that he's warning against. And Matthew, in his account of it, includes the Sadducees. So leaven was to show how quickly and how thoroughly, 
how throughout the whole something could spread and how it could alter in, in its essence the, that which is mixed with flour and water turns to dough because of the yeast, because of how it reacts with one another. Only one time in the New Testament is yeast something good, as seen in the parable in Matthew 13 and Luke 13, speaking of the kingdom of heaven as being yeast, and it grows, and it develops, and it encompasses the whole. Speaking of the kingdom of heaven as leaven that the woman took and hidden three measures of flour. Every other, other instances, it's negative, it's influence of corruption and wickedness, malice. Malice and wickedness in 1 Corinthians 5.8, pride, 1 Corinthians 5.6, and false teaching on circumcision, Galatians 5.9, didn't mention some, which was an argument for legalism. In rabbinic literature, yeast as a metaphor is used to refer as for the, to the intentions of the heart, and most of the times in a bad way. So the connotation of leaven to the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is clearly a negative one in Mark's text. In the Gospel according to Matthew, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is their teaching, it says. The Pharisees, as we've seen time and time again here, are legalists. They are ritualists. They are the, those who only seem to be such on the outside. They were following the Hasidic tradition. They were the pious, the saintly, those who separated themselves from everything sinful that they could find, yet not seeing that they themselves were sinful too. They were the separatists. They wanted nothing to do with uncleanliness, so no Gentiles, no love for the Roman occupants, and they even separated themselves from the rest of Jewish society because they were so beneath them and and unclean. So the people that they were meant to serve with their knowledge, they, in a sense, abandoned them because they were too unclean. It's like a teacher who abandons his class because they're so stupid. It's like, no, that's not the way it is. Or doctor who leaves sick people because they're so sick and I don't want to get sick. It's like, do you, you miss the point. And so did these Pharisees. They knew God's law and they were there to help and guide the people, but they separated themselves from it because they were so unholy, not as them. The Sadducees, they were the liberals, the rationalists. They ran the temple and they extorted the people. They disqualified the animals being brought in for sacrifices and said, no, nah, it's not good enough. You need to buy a new sacrifice, sacrifice animal from us which are, they are pure, they are good, and they are more expensive. So they were just, they were the liberals, the rationals, they, they took, they, uh, they were happy with the Romans, they made money from it. They were compromisers, they only were in, were there for the benefit in a sense, not serving the true God in holiness, they were serving their own pockets. And lastly, we have the Herodians, they were the secularists, barely keeping enough religion in their politics to keep the name Jew, in a sense. They only were Jews in the sense that it gave them political power. So beware false doctrine, beware legalism, beware liberalism, and 
secularism. As his disciples were, and all disciples are, according to Ephesians, subtle to be tossed to and fro, carried away by every wind of doctrine, like a ship carried away without an anchor. It just is thrown by the wind and the sea. So he says, watch out for false doctrine. Watch out for hypocrisy and watch out for unbelief. Jesus says, by the grammar, keep watching out for it. Don't just, oh, I've seen, I've, I've looked. It's like, no, keep, keep on guard. Keep looking, keep watching. Al Martin, a preacher, said that the reality and quality of one's religious experience is determined by the substance of one's religious beliefs. So the reality and quality of the religious experiences of people is tied to their beliefs of this religion. So Jesus wants them to beware so they do not corrupt their beliefs, is what he's saying. And it's the main point of the, of the passage. So even though they were the closest ones to Jesus, they were the inner circle, they were the disciples, the, those who followed them everywhere, even, they, even though they had a good place to learn from, even they were susceptible to error and wrong understanding. And so Jesus warns, charges, and exhorts them to be aware and alert against the leaven. As one commentator said, the disciples are unaware of their actual condition. They quibble about the meaning of bread without realizing that they are being infected by a deadly cancer, this leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herod, Herodians. Their failure to comprehend can produce a hardness of heart. So that's the end result of wrong belief. It can turn you away from good doctrine, can turn you away from good water, can turn you, in fact, away from water altogether. How often do we, who go to church, not think of people being in church, is immune to the dangers of unbelief? We are here, we sing the songs, we pray, we hear the teaching. Even if you go to church, that is not a free ticket to heaven, so you can turn off your mind. So beware of wrong teaching of God, or you might find up that you end up with a false God. Because you will worship what you believe in. And Jesus says, if you believe wrongly, you will if you believe wrongly, you will worship wrongly, in a sense. Why do you reason because you have no bread? Jesus asked them. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Remember the two last the the last healing, the deaf and the and the 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 mute man? He had hears but could not hear, but he was healed. And in the next section we will see sight being restored fully. And as but here there's still some blindness yet in the disciples' eyes. They do not see fully yet. As Jesus said earlier in four nine, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so Jesus asked them. Are your hearts hard? And this is the problem that has run all through time. As we read it in the as we read in the Old Testament reading, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind, who is deaf. 
He sees many things, but do not observe them. His ears are open, but does not hear. Or Jeremiah 5.21 Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes, but do not see, who have ears, but hear not. Or Ezekiel 12.2 Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Speaking of Israel. And do you not remember when, when David fought, was going to fight Goliath, he told everyone there and he told Saul, the king, I have fought ti- I, well, tiger or lion and, lion and bear. And uh, God was faithful to me in that. So why should he not be faithful to me in this? Or Stephen in Acts 7, in this sermon, in his speech, his defense speech, he's recounting all the things that God has done through time, and he shows how God is faithful, how God is loving, how God is just, and how God has displayed his love and his truth. And so Jesus here is asking his disciples, do you not remember what we have done together? Do you not remember that when I broke the five loaves, for the 5,000, how many baskets were full? 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full? Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? They, they'd, not see, they'd seen Jesus work miracles, feeding fa- thousands from crumbs, in a sense, comparatively. Two times, yet they were slow of heart and understanding, and they were worried because they only had one bread this time, which by the previous two feedings should be enough to feed thousands because of God. Jesus could supply them here too and they forgot about it. Jesus did not abandon them. He was, as in comparison with the Pharisees, he was patient with them. He was not gentle with the calluses of their hearts. He rebuked them and said, Remember, see, hear. Don't you remember what we've done? Don't you remember who I am? The Lord who created them, who would redeem them, had called them by name. They were his, as our Old Testament test said. He had been with them, been with them through the stormy waters, and so, so that that would not overwhelm them. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do you see? Do you hear? Do I? Has the waters of grace rejuvenated your heart or not? Is there leaven in your heart that will lead you astray? Let us recognize and resist bad leaven. And let us accept the leaven of the kingdom of God that will grow in us and take us to full maturity and faith. Let us remember God's faithfulness in the past And remember that it is Jesus who draws us and keeps us in the present. Jesus, in this text, calls his disciples to see and hear and remember so that their hearts do not harden in the face of those who would affect them with another kind of leaven. In Revelations 2, 4-5, Jesus says, 
But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen from the first love. Remember and repent and do not do the worst you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So in Revelation, Jesus is calling them to remember who they were in Christ, what Christ has done for them, or else the patience will run out. He says he will, rem- he will remove the lampstand from its place unless repentance comes. So Christians, remember what God has, what Jesus had done in history and in your life. Remember then and understand that he is the one who saves you. He is the one who loves you and he has been faithful to you and he will continue to be so. And if you're not one of his, if you are hard, rocky ground, call out for the waters of grace to rejuvenate your your heart and rid yourself of the Pharisees' leaven so that your religion and your love for God can become true and will grow into the kingdom of God truly. Let's pray.